Stand together, if you would, and uh, open your Bibles, and uh, we're going to just we're going to capture a, a verse, and then work, and then work in uh, chapters six and seven of Second Corinthians. It'd help if I'd tell you where the scripture was, wouldn't it? Second Corinthians chapters six and seven this evening. Thank you to Barnett for the powerful singing. Beautiful song. The sad thing for many of us is we've lived what Sister Joy was just singing. Trying in our own strength. Never, never living in confident victory. That's, that's not what God wants for us. And his grace provides what he wants to do in us and through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, most of you could quote it. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping together tonight. Thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for what you are doing and have done and will, and will do pray that you'll guide in this part of this service, and may we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> this, this scripture, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, is actually directly connected to chapter 6. Notice that he says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. What promises? Well, he gives us the promises in chapter 6, and they are twofold. In verse 16, the last part of that verse, he says, You are the temple of the living God, and God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then in verse 18, he says, I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. What incredible promises. Having those promises, promises that he will be a father to us, the, the Lord Almighty will be a father to us, that he will dwell with us or live among us, be part of our lives. That's an incredible promise. Have you ever tried to live some, with someone who is distinctly dissimilar from you? I'm not talking about your spouse. <laughs> you chose that. So that's not what I'm talking about. But uh, a couple of times in our ministry life, we've, we've hosted people who needed serious help. When we were pastoring in Canada, we, <clears throat> we actually had a program for people with addictions and uh, and one of the things we did in that program was we opened our home and that's always a threatening experience in some ways and all, and also can be a very rewarding experience but uh, one of the fellows that came to to stay with us his his father was a pastor and had a long history rebellion and disobedience and and I was concerned because we 
our youngest son was at home still. He was in his mid-late teens, and, and I was concerned about influencing him. And so I, I, I talked pretty frank to the, to the young man who came to stay with us. He lasted about a week and a half because I had told him there were some things I, I just laid down. You know, if you leave town, you tell me when you're leaving and when you're coming back. <laughs> well, he hadn't been used to living like that. And you don't show up at the house in the middle of the night. You, you come in at the right time and you leave at the right time. And part of the problem with most people who are wrapped up in addictions is they have not had any distinct disciplines in their life. And I was trying to help him see that. Well, uh, it didn't last. One night we got ready for bed. He wasn't home. I got up in the middle of the night. He wasn't back. Eight o'clock he wasn't back. About two in the afternoon he drove up. And uh, I met him at the door and said, where you been? He said, well, I went to Sarnia, about 60 miles down the road. And I said, well, <clears throat> I just want to remind you that one of the things you promised to do when you came here was tell me when you leave and when you're coming back. And so you can go pack. <laughs> or you say, that's harsh. No, that's... That's what he needed more than anything. And I've watched, I've watched people try to get along in situations where there's distinct differences. I could spend a long time here. It's interesting watching the American culture and our, you know, our, our racial cultural that we've created for ourselves, not realizing that all the rest of the world wrestles with cultural distinctives and differences as well. My wife and I were in the Philippines. We thought when we went to the Philippines that all the Filipinos were Filipinos. Well, they are all Filipinos, but the mountain people are distinctly different than the lowland people. That, because that's human nature. We all carry distinctives. It's interesting to me as we come into this to realize that God is inviting us to be part of his family, if you will. He's inviting us into a community, into a relationship. And he, and he gives them these incredible promises. He wants to work in our lives. God wants to work in our lives. He's not passively standing by saying, well, if they ever need help, I'm here to help them. That's not who he is. He wants to be actively involved in blessing you, working, when I say blessing, I'm not talking about material things, but working in your life, producing righteousness and beauty and grace and holiness. He wants to. But the only way you can truly influence a person is spend time with them, significant time with them. And so Paul realizes that and he's, and he's writing to the Corinthians about what that should look like. If we profess to be believers, and we do, then it ought to be the desire of our heart to have as much of God living in us and through us as we are capable of receiving. And the beauty is, he makes that available to us. He does. In fact, in the, the promise, the incredible promise, I will dwell in them. I will walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen to what he's saying. I'm going to live with them. I'm going to walk with them. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be part of who they are. That's an interesting promise because that was given, it was given several times in the Old Testament to the Israelites. In Leviticus, God said to them as they came out of Egypt and on their way to the, to the, to the land of Canaan, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. He wanted to be identified with them. And even though they wrestled with that and went into Babylonian captivity, God gave them the same promise again through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's, it's the Father's plan to have a people among whom he can dwell, with whom he can live. He loves us. And I think sometimes we, we say that casually and we, and we put plaques on the walls of our house and thank you for doing that to remind us how much God loves us. But I don't, I don't think we can ever on time side fully comprehend how much he loves us. He loves us. He, he wants to participate in your life. He wants to be part of who you are. This whole work of God from, from creation all the way to the book of Revelation, from salvation through sanctification through a walk with God, all of it is designed so that God can have a people among whom he can live and pour out his spirit and bless us. Israel's time in the wilderness was, was especially designed to show them. We talked about that a little bit the other evening. Is it designed to show them who he was so they could understand him, so they could fully comprehend who he was and receive him. And become who he wanted them to be. It's the same for us. Notice he says here in, 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 first, in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For you or we are the temple of the living God. Think of that. You and I individually and corporately are the temple of the living God. He wants to live in you and through you. The temple is an interesting it's an interesting concept. You know, of course, that Solomon built a temple and then there was another temple built after the return. But what, what was the temple for? When we talk about you and me being temples of the living God, what does that mean? Does that mean I, I wear a certain kind of clothing and, you know, act with a certain aura? No, it doesn't mean that. What it, what it means is some fundamental things. It's where sacrifice is offered. A temple is a place where you offer sacrifice. It's a place where you remind yourself as you give deeply and richly to the God you serve that you love him and that he loves you. And you're repaying that. We do that primarily as New Testament Christians by our lives. Certainly by our giving and by our corporate worship. But more importantly about our lives, it's a place where we offer sacrifice. It's a, place where we, it's a place where we serve in the sense of participating in what God's doing in the world. Let me just stop for a minute. Often, if, I, if, if I'm not careful, and I'm, I'm talking about myself right now, but often I think if I'm really going to make a significant difference for God, I have to have some kind of special office or some kind of special experience or some kind of drama, dramatic something to happen in my life so I can make a big difference for God. 
The longer I live, the more I realize God just wants ordinary people to live ordinary lives filled with his presence. Stopping at Walmart, stopping by the donut shop, pumping gas, and letting God live through you to serve the people that he puts in your life. You're a temple. Your primary worship is not here. Your primary worship is with your family and the people with whom you interact. That's where you serve. A temple is a place for service. A temple is a place is a place for praise. Praise is lifted up. A temple is a place for worship, of course, focused worship on who God is and what he's done for us, his blood and his covenant and his sacrifice. The temple, depending on the location, the New Testament focuses on the personal and corporate worship. It's a place of worship. You are a temple. You are a temple. You're a place where God wants to live to show the richness of his presence to the world around you. His powerful promise is a promise of his presence. It was received initially at Pentecost. And we're not going to take time to go into that this evening, but the New Testament church was called out to, it was their privilege to individually and corporately interact with the lives of the people around them in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's our business as well. It really is. I really believe sometimes the trouble that God allows in our life is not to just trouble you, but it's, it's to allow you to respond in a way that shows an unbelieving world what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. We don't like that. I, I've been complaining about a backache for a week and a half. But I know that how I'm responding today is not I, how I would have responded before Christ. Does that make sense? The trouble that comes to your life, are you responding in your strength or in his strength? He wants to live in you and through you. His presence offers a personable, consistent, moral, knowledgeable understanding of God living in my life. It includes the gifts of the Spirit, certainly, but it, but it is more than just the gifts. It's His presence, His grace in us. Now, that's a promise. And I, I have to confess to you, I feel very inadequate to tr in trying to challenge you to understand that God wants to live in you and through you and with you. He wants to. Not to manipulate you, but to bless you, to pour out His grace and his beauty and his richness in your life every day. But he also, Paul reminds us then that if we're to receive these promises, we need to, we need to be aware of some things, and that is there are preconditions that support this promise. Notice he says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Now what does that mean? Does it mean I... I go to the sink and wash? Well, in a sense, in a spiritual sense, it is. But it also means that, I, that I'm aware of the fact that if I'm going to live in God's presence, then my life is going to have to be distinctly different 
from the presence of the lives of the people around me that don't know Christ. Notice he says in verse 14 of the 6th chapter, don't be unequally yoked together. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord or what, what union has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Again, in verse, six, verse 17 of that same chapter, he says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. You see, that again, that call to be distinctly different didn't just rise here in the New Testament. Isaiah gave it to the people in the book of Isaiah. He said, depart, you depart, go out thence and don't touch the unclean thing. If we're not careful, we dabble with stuff we don't belong in because we're not conscious that it's so distinctly different from our Christianity because it's part of our culture. You see, again, in Ezekiel, he tells them, I will accept your, your offerings, your sacrifice, but I want to bring you out. I want to bring you to a people. I want to gather you to myself. You see, the Father's preconditions rest on the impossibility of merging matters that are fundamentally different. There are some things that won't mix. They, they won't go together. If you have one of, the, one of those two things and you mix it with the other, something's going to be destroyed. Notice he says again, don't be yoked with unbelievers. Righteousness and unrighteousness don't work. There's no communion with light and darkness. You see, it, this is more than just a distinct way of living in the sense that, I'm, that, I, that I live differently than the guy that lives next door to me. It's more than that. It will be, it'll include that, but it's much more than that. It's more than, please listen to me, it's more than dressing distinctively. Now, I believe with all of my heart that a believer... A person who knows and loves Christ is going to live and dress and walk in a way that honors Him. So don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. But it's not just a distinct way to dress or a distinct way to live. What he's talking about is it is a separation that is founded on fundamental spiritual principles. Righteousness and unrighteousness cannot walk together. It's not possible. They are completely different moral issues. He talks about the physical reality. He says, he, he, he compares light with dark. And you know, if there's pure light, there's no shadow. And if it's all dark, there's no light. And you can't spiritually mix them. It's not possible. They don't come together. He talks about spiritual reality. Paul contrasts Christ with Belial. Christ is the righteous, sinless, holy one. Belial, of course, is clearly the wicked person. Christ, the, 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 the holy trinity, the God we serve, is morally distinct from all around him. He's holy. He's set apart. We've mentioned that. He's pure. And he won't mix. It's not possible 
to mix him, to confuse him with unrighteousness and ungodliness. Paul mentions the temples of God and the temples of idols. The moral reality is that we either honor God and celebrate godliness and righteousness and truth, or we're participating somewhere in our lives in immorality. Now, listen to me for just a minute. Immorality is more than sexual misbehavior. Anything that's unlike Christ is immoral. You can't put them together. And so he's, he's reminding us that we're called out. We're called apart, not just so we live a distinct life for ourselves. We're called out. We're, we're separated unto him, into his presence. You see... He wants to separate us for his sake and for our blessing. And so he calls us to purity. He calls us apart to live and reflect his purity and his righteousness and his truth and his grace and mercy. To reflect his person. He calls us as well to identify with him so that our lives are identified with the person of who Christ is. I'm an, I'm an American. I'm also a Canadian, but I'm most of all a Christian. And some places I go, I hear people say, well, I'm an American, and that's okay. It's, it's good to be an American, and it's good to have good red blood. But that's not your first allegiance, sir. Your first allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And he calls us apart to be identified with who he is. He calls us apart not only to live purely and to identify with him, but he calls us apart so that we may be examples, so that we may live as a people set apart to him to illustrate to a broken world what it looks like to live a righteous life, a careful life, an honest life, a moral life. What our nation needs more than anything else is an awakening among people who profess to be Christians that they start living like Christians again. I have to tell you a story about a young man I pastored years ago. Big old strapping guy, played football. I was just full of life. But he chose not to serve God. And just a, a, a few years ago, I was talking to someone who knows him well, and he told me this story. He said he was, he'd, he'd, he'd taken his paycheck, and he and his wife had gone to the store and bought groceries. And when he paid for the groceries out of his check, the cashier mispaid him like $500 too much. And he stuck it in his, he stuck it in his wallet, and he walked to the car. And he said, we were... They were loading the groceries in the car, and he turned to his wife and said, i got to go back in there. And she said, well, what would you forget? He said, I didn't forget anything. I've got $500 that's not mine. And she said, that's not your mistake. That's theirs. Forget it. It's ours. And he said, oh, oh no, it's not. And my buddy that was telling me about it said, he's, he's conscious of the fact that if he ever gets right for, with God again, He's going to have to go pay that $500 back. You see, what I'm talking about is 
examples. Believers live. You are the hands and the feet and the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever notice what happened on the road to Damascus? Paul was on his way to create havoc in the church. And the Lord Jesus woke him up, knocked him off his donkey, and he found himself lying in the dust. And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, you know, of course, if you know your New Testament, Jesus had already ascended to the Father. Physically, he was at the Father's right hand. But he said to, he said to Paul, you're persecuting me. How you handle the church is how you handle Jesus Christ. He identifies with you. He wants to identify with you. He wants to be part of your life. You see, the participation is that you and I, you and I can embrace his promise, the richness of his indwelling. We can know that. Again, he says to them in verses 17 and 18, I will dwell in them and walk with them. and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Don't you love that? I will be their father. I'm so thankful he's my father. You see, the participation opens the possibility of enjoying the promise of divine life. Oh, it begins in salvation and is made full in entire sanctification, but it is completed as we live in his presence. Some of the testimonies tonight reminded me of that thought. It, it doesn't matter where you've been or what, you, what your experience has been. If you're going to live in Christ, you're still living in a human body. And we still are growing. We're still learning. You see, Paul's instruction is to a perfection. The word there really means a fullness, a bringing to completion, a bringing to maturity. Holiness is the richness and beauty of God living in the life of a believer and marking the community and world. Participation includes understanding of his presence. When Paul talks about the fear of the Lord, he's not talking about living in terror or anguish or uncertainty. He's talking about living in a place of respect, deep respect. My, my father was a quiet auto, automobile mechanic. He was one of the quietest men you'd want to meet. Never made any waves. But he lived consistent. And as a child, the last thing I wanted to do was disappoint him. Was to do something that would offend him or cause pain for him because I honored him, I fear him. Paul's telling us that we can, we can live in such a place that our lives are made holy through his grace and his power and his richness. And we can live humbly 
The longer I live, the less I impressed, am impressed with lights and sound and fury and drama. What I want to see is consistency, faithfulness, richness, and that's what God's producing. I've watched some of you. I don't know you all. I obviously know some of you, but the core of this church, I don't know, but I'm, sus I'm suspecting that many of you who've been here years, you've marked more people than you have any idea. A few years ago, I was out in, in, in Colorado or Montana. I'm sorry, what state was I in? I was in Colorado preaching a meeting. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a couple of fellows in that church that on, at first glance, they would startle you. I remember the first time I saw one of them, he walked in his church. The pews were just hardwood, no pads, just hardwood. And he had a six-shooter hung about halfway between his hip and his knee. And uh, that caught my attention. I, I've been in a part of the country where you conceal carry. You don't just hang it out there. And... Uh, when he sat down, you can imagine what that sounded like. And any time he moved on the pew, that six-shooter's rattling around. And then I got to know his brother. And they're mountain people. They work high in the mountains. And if you just glance at them and don't know, you think they're, they're a pretty rough bunch. But one evening as I finished the, me the message... One of those boys came up to me and I said, he said, I, I want to tell you a little story about my mother. He said, my mother was a very quiet, unassuming, humble woman that made no big marks. But he said, we'd bring the high school kids home with us, our buddies home and have meals with us. And you know how kids are, interact. And he said, they got to know my mother. And they knew that she was a godly woman and a praying woman. And he said, uh, a few years later, one of those boys got home from Vietnam. And he said, as soon as I saw him, he, he said to me, where's your mom? And he told, her, he told him, the young man where, he, where she was. And he said, she has left such a deep impression on me that when... That, when I, was, that I, when I was in the middle of combat in Vietnam, my buddies would say to me, whose name are you calling? And he said, I wasn't even conscious that I was calling a name, but I was calling the name of your mother, asking God to help me. And I thought about, here's a woman who have no idea, but God living in her life, was marking a rough and tumble teenager whose life would be marked with the beauty of the gospel as he went out into a broken world. Listen to me tonight. He wants to live in you and through you and with you. He wants to do that because he, he loves you so extravagantly, so richly that that the blessing of his presence can fill your life. Whether you're conscious of it or not, the blessing of his presence can fill your life. 
so that you reflect his beauty, his purity, his grace, his richness. Do you know him? Is your heart open to him? If it's not, it can be. I want to tell you this. He will do you no harm. Sometimes when we're living on the edge, we think, you know, if I, if I just really just say, God, come live with me all the time in every place, that's kind of frightening, isn't it? Until he gets there. And you find out it's like, wow, why did I wait so long to do this? Because he loves us. His extravagant love wants to be poured out into our lives. Are you a recipient of his promise? You may be. <laughs> He's available. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you all for being here. Matt, come, come play for us one, one, one verse something. And if anybody would like to pray.